this is Dr. Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels. It is Tuesday, June 14th, 2016, and tonight's topic is, why is breakfast the most important meal of the day? Tonight, I'm going to expose the history of breakfast in the United States and how it became the most important meal of the day. The question is, why breakfast is important, to whom, and how does that impact your health? And as always, think happens. So, the government frequently issues guidelines and advice on how to stay healthy and what you should do, what you shouldn't do. And I don't know about you, but I went to a government certified school and I was trained, instructed, indoctrinated that the government had an overriding interest in my health and well-being, therefore had the authority to issue such edicts and recommendations. And I should obey them because the government was more concerned about my health and well-being than I was. That is what I was taught in school. However, we shall soon see that this might not be the case. And so, you would think that breakfast being the most important meal of the day would be a health issue. And so, of course, then one would look to the health literature. Huh. Not so. One finds the answer at Priceonomics. I kid you not. Priceonomics.com reveals how breakfast became, as they say, a thing. And this is absolutely fascinating. And so, uh, this became a household issue in 1944 marketing campaign launched by Grape Nuts, a uh, manu- manufacturer uh, manufactured by General Foods to sell more cereal. So during the campaign, marketers named "Eat a Good Breakfast" dash "Do a Better Job." And so grocery stores handed out pamphlets that promoted the importance of breakfast, while radio and advertisements announced that nutrition experts say breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Obviously, of course, these nutrition experts were compensated for their uh, opinions by the marketing department. So ads like these were the key to the rise of cereal, a product invented by men like John Harvey Kellogg, a deeply religious doctor who believed that cereal would both improve Americans' health and keep them from masturbating and desiring sex. <laughs> so, before cereal in the mid-1800s, the American breakfast was not all that different from other meals. Middle and upper-class Americans ate eggs, pastries, pancakes, but also oysters, boiled chickens, and beef steaks. So in other words, before cereal, what the sensible family did was they cooked once a day, and they ate that meal uh, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, which is a pretty sensible thing to do. Why cook three times a day? Just cook one meal. But no. So the rise of cereal established breakfast as a meal with distinct foods and created the model of processed, ready-to-eat breakfast that still largely reigns. And it all depends on advertising and convincing you that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. 
the beguiling history of breakfast. Now, what do you mean beguiling? Beguiling means to deceive, to lie, beguiling, to fool. So the modern era of breakfast begins with cereal. Before its invention, breakfast was not standard or routine. So before the invention of modern breakfast cereal, breakfast wasn't standard or routine. So the Romans believed it was healthier to eat only one meal a day. The food historian Carolyn Yeldon has said, many Native Americans Uh, and Abigail Carroll writes in The Invention of the American Meal. Got that. So many people, uh, the American Indians, for example, ate bits of food throughout the day rather than sitting down at meals and sometimes fasted for days at a time. So we have two extremes. We have the Romans ate one meal a day. American Indians decided, eh, we'll just kind of eat throughout the day. And then every now and then we'll just eat nothing for several days. And so medieval Europe, historians write that breakfast was only a luxury for the rich or only a necessity for laborers or mostly skip. In other words, uh, you know, no one felt obligated to do any particular thing for breakfast. This is shocking because in the United States, if a parent doesn't feed a kid breakfast, what's the parent? Negligent, of course, endangering the welfare of the minor, by golly. Let's go further. And while many American colonists ate breakfast, they were reputedly harried, that means quick events, that took place after hours of morning work. So in other words, you get up, go to work for a while, then you might quickly eat a snack, which would be your first meal of the day since you woke up. So, historians agree that breakfast became a daily, first thing in the morning institution, once workers moved to cities and became employees who worked set schedules. In Europe, this first became, began in the 1600s, and breakfast achieved uh, universal participation, near, near universal, during the Industrial Revolution. With people going off to a full day's work, breakfast became a thing. But there's already a tradition of certain foods, like bread, beer, cheese, porridge, or, get this, leftovers being cooked or eaten in the morning. Although since uh, history writers uh, spend very little time describing breakfast, so tracing its origins is difficult. In other words, if the history writers didn't write a lot about it, it probably didn't happen a whole lot in history. So why are eggs a staple of brunch? Searching for the eggs, breakfast link, takes one back at least to early history. Bible scholar uh, John Rice describes Mary of Nazareth preparing eggs for a breakfast attended by Jesus. Well, what about pancakes? Well, paleontologists speculate that humans ate primitive pancakes over 5,000 years ago. More recently, Thomas Jefferson enjoyed crepe-like pancakes, which kind of feeds the uh, contention that breakfast was something for the wealthier class. In other words, a badge of prestige and privilege, not a biological uh, necessity. So once breakfast became fully institutionalized, the American breakfast grew increasingly like dinner. Americans wanted meat, 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 and potatoes, and cake, and pie. So Lowell Dyson writes of food preferences in 19th century America. 
This mania extended to breakfast, and dishes like beefsteaks and roasted chickens joined staples like cornbread, flapjacks, and butter on the breakfast table. It was not a recipe for good health. Get this. So once Americans started participating in this ritual called breakfast, Americans complained chronically of indigestion, which early nutritionists and reformers named dyspepsia. And Abigail Carroll has explained that magazines and newspapers just overflowed with rhetoric about this dyspepsia condition and what to do about it. It was the 1800s equivalent of our obesity debate. And so, Americans, of course, need a simpler, lighter breakfast. And again, this is, uh, you know, uh, from the 1800s. And so in the 1900s, we got cereal. So cereal was actually invented. Now, so get this. So you got to follow me here. So we have no breakfast. People were told, hey, get this breakfast thing going. People develop basically sickness. Chronic indigestion and dyspepsia and feeling lousy. So I said, okay, we need a simpler, lighter breakfast. So what was that? Cereal. So before cereal uh, represented our uh, over-sugared, over-processed relationship with food, Americans used cereal as a health food. So this was actually marketed to Americans as a health food. And as we can now see from where we are sitting, uh, it was a pretty successful marketing campaign. So its origins lie in health sanitariums run in the uh, mid to late 1800s by some familiar names like uh, John Kellogg. It was uh, a reform period when doctors were still often called quacks. Germ theory was just gaining prominence. In other words, doctors were just beginning to think maybe they should wash their hands. And um, Dr. Kellogg's favorite medical tool was a bath. And... uh, his uh, cures represented spa treatments like hydrotherapy was very popular at the time. And so Kellogg and his peers believed they could improve America's health by changing their diets. Preposterous, of course, then and now, because we're reading this is on an economics blog, right? So they don't, they don't believe in that, not that the regular doctors do either. I was, uh, just to digress a moment here, I was trained in medical school that every single person under the age of five Whatever affliction they had was dietary-related, period, done, end of discussion. At five years of age in one day, whatever affliction anyone had was not diet-related, done, period, end of discussion. Of course, you can imagine, uh, at the tender young age of uh, 22, I scratched my head and said, what happens between the, the age of five years and five years in one day that all of a sudden makes all diseases unrelated to diet? Of course, naively me, I thought they were going to cover that in medical school, which, of course, they did not. So, what happened then was uh, they wanted Americans to change their diets. They believed that too much meat and too many spices had negative effects. And they preferred whole grains to white breads. So a dietary reformer named Sylvester Graham, that's right, father of the graham cracker, invented the graham cracker in 1827. And James Jackson, who did not allow red meat at his sanitarium, invented a cereal he named Granula in 1863. And James Kellogg uh, developed cornflakes in the 1890s. So the original versions were uh, Spartan affairs. They were not sweet. People had to soak the granola in milk just to make it edible. Critics called uh, granola wheat rocks. Kellogg's versions were not much better. 
but people wanted them. The first year that the product was available saw more than 50 tons manufactured and sold in spite of primitive production facilities. A Kellogg biographer writes of his cornflakes, soon cereal manufacturing companies sprang up all over the country. By 1903, there were over 100 cereal companies in Kellogg's town of Battle Creek alone. Wow. So it was a full-on craze. Cereal was seen as a solution to a nation's dyspepsia. Author uh, Abigail Carroll argues, and since it didn't need to be cooked, it was a convenience food at a time when the Industrial Revolution meant people had less time and less access to a kitchen or a farm. And so we see here then that this uh, breakfast being the most important meal of the day went hand in hand with industrialization, people being chained to uh, machines, to jobs, and not having the time to prepare their own food. And being separated, of course, from the farm. So the most successful food trends tend to combine science and morality. And, of course, the invention of cereal was no exception. So Kellogg termed his lifestyle, more exercise, more baths, and simpler, blander foods. Biologic living is what he called it. He gave lectures, wrote long tracts to promote it, and described the modern diet as unnatural and too diverse. And he said, eat biologically. Eat simply, scientifically, normally. Just like these use the term a paleo devotee, he promised a return to man's natural diet, except his answer was cereal, which was totally unnatural. Now, I just like to say, uh, of course, I was born in 1957, and so I missed all of this uh, rationale. And in my house, where I grew up, spices were used uh, quite generously. And so when I went away to school, went away to college, and everything was bland, I kind of scratched my head again and said, what's going on here, you know? Who's going to eat this stuff? But now, as a natural healer, I find that people who don't spice their food, who don't use uh, common herbs like thyme and rosemary uh, and turmeric and garlic, uh, actually are not healthy because they're not using, routinely using healing spices that can uh, ward off disease. Okay. So, Dr. Kellogg believed that eating this way would solve much more than dyspepsia and indigestion. So, like Dr. Graham, who was a graham cracker, Kellogg believed Americans' meat-centric diets led them to carnal sins. So, highly seasoned meats, stimulating sauces, dainty tidbits in endless variety, wrote Kellogg, who was a vegetarian. Irritate the nerves and react upon the sexual organs. So this is, so this is the kind of scientific study and rationale that made breakfast the most important meal of the day. And so in his mind, uh, touching one's sexual organs was a shameful act linked to bad health and overstimulating diets, <clears throat> diseases, and sexual acts formed an insidious cycle. So eating cereal would keep Americans um, from desiring sex. How many mothers, while teaching their children the principles of virtue in the nursery, he wrote, unwittingly stimulate their passions at the dinner table until vice becomes a physical necessity. Uh, He also recommended circumcision and tying children's hands with rope to prevent them from touching their sexual organs. Uh, This is uh, John Harvey Kellogg. 
He was a true believer. During his lectures, he explained how people could make their own cereal at home. He said, you might say I'm destroying the health food business here by giving these recipes, he said, but I am not after the business, I'm after the reform. And so this is a scientific basis that, um, but a historic basis that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And so like any uh, food trend, though, the marketers took over the purest work. <laughs> and so already this uh, concept of breakfast has been uh, corrupted by some pretty non-scientific uh, conjecture. All right. So Dr. Kellogg felt particularly bitter about the development. So the two most successful central entre- serial entrepreneurs were his brother, Will Keith Kellogg, and one of his former partners, C.W. Post, who Dr. Kellogg accused of stealing the cornflakes recipe from his safe. So they um, all created cereal companies, um, Kellogg headed by Will Kellogg, and Postum Cereal Company, now Post Cereals, and became wildly successful due to two ingredients, sugar and advertising. Yeah, sugar and advertising. So by 1940s, Post Cereals fully coated its cereals with sugar. The Kellogg's brothers had long argued over adding sugar. Dr. Kellogg believed sugar was a vice in his pure creation, while Will Kellogg thought it was necessary to improve the taste of their horse food. After some hand-wringing, the Kellogg company copied Post and coated cornflakes with sugar. And we know those to be frosted cornflakes. Still, cereal kept its health food reputation thanks to a constant barrage of advertising. Now, I want you to, you know... Really, really think about this. Uh, still, today, 2016, you will hear people say breakfast is the most important meal of the day. But this is how it started. This is, uh, these are the beginnings. And cereal manufacturers, like CW Post, claimed that cereal cured everything up to malaria and appendicitis. And of course, we know appendicitis is caused by constipation, and eating this uh, dried, sugar-covered cereal probably contributed to constipation. The proclamations on today's cereal boxes that they are a good source of vitamin D date back to America's obsession with vitamins in the 1920s. Hmm. I think that obsession is recurring. So to appeal to children, the cereal companies pioneered the use of cartoon mascots, characters like Tony the Tiger, which is Frosted Flakes, Snap, Crackle Pop, Rice Krispies, and all this appeared in the 30s. And so advertising was a key to the cereal business, whether they involved cartoon characters, wacky health claims. The important thing was to establish a brand for each cereal. And this is what um, Mr. Post said of Post cereals. The sunshine that makes a business plant grow, he said, is advertising. And he said this as he embarked on a career that would earn him a net worth in 2016 of $800 million. $800 million. Of course, the most important meal of the day. So cereal and breakfast foods don't have a monopoly on animated mascots and zany health claims. But there are a number of reasons why the battle over breakfast is particularly ferocious. First thing is any company that convinces you to eat their cereal, Pop-Tarts or bagels, absolutely owns your breakfast. Because most people eat the same breakfast every day. Studies have found that consumers have strong brand loyalty to breakfast foods like cereal. Our breakfast choices are likely more habitual because of the strength of morning routines. Ads by the chicken lobby may convince people to eat a bit more chicken 
but an avalanche of Tony the Tiger ads can get tens of thousands of children to eat Frosted Flakes every morning for years. Another is that while some Americans cook breakfast, people's desire for a fast, convenient meal means that many breakfast foods are packaged products that rely on advertising. You can uh, determine this from the structure of the cereal industry. Cereal is extremely easy to make, a fact that angered Dr. Kellogg, who patented his creation but failed to prevent others from copying it. Yet, just a few companies dominate the market. Uh, So the Federal Trade Commission once complained that an antitrust lawsuit competing with the cereal giants is difficult because they create dozens of cereal brands and promote trademarks through intensive advertising, which results in high barriers to entry into the cereal market. In other words, you're not going to eat Rice Krispies that don't have the snap, crackle, pop characters. No, because you don't know if it's the real one that you saw in the advertising. Right. And so the magic of the snap, crackle, pop and all the advertisements for cereal, Pop-Tarts, yogurts, breakfast bars, is high profits from an easily imitated product. And so the final reason why the marketing battle over breakfast is so fierce, and get this, is that corporations have for decades seen it as the meal that offers the most opportunity to wring out more food spending from consumers. Yes, it's an opportunity. Why have fast food chains focused more on advertising egg McMuffins, White Castle, Belgian waffles, and Taco Bell breakfast burritos? Well, an industry expert says, throughout the fast food world, lunch and dinner sales have been flat for years, while breakfast sales have climbed steadily. You can find the same logic in cereal makers' 1944 marketing strategy, the one that coined the phrase, this breakfast is the most important meal of the day. So breakfast is a grocer's most promising target, one of the admin explained. Lunch and dinner in the average American home are fairly well set. Shocking. If the marketers and executives genuinely believe in the value of promoting a cereal breakfast as healthy? Well, nutritionists have debated back and forth for decades whether America's increasingly desk-bound workforce needed a hearty breakfast. Of course, probably you haven't heard this debate. It's been pretty uh, quiet on the down low. And so, by the time of the 1944 campaign during World War II, government nutritionists had sided with the pro-breakfast camp. In the interest of improving the health of Army recruits, they teamed up with cereal companies to suggest that everyone eat a good breakfast of whole grain cereal and fruit. So nutritionists are less certain about the value of this advice today. So get this. Those studying the issue say that studies that supported the importance of breakfast for weight management have been contradicted by, in other words, of course, these studies were all done by the companies that manufacture cereal. But they have been contradicted by more rigorous examinations and that studies that examine the importance of school children eating breakfast have failed to show that breakfast by itself helps them focus on their work. This is very interesting. I know when I was a kid, Nick, I grew up in the ghetto. Uh, But in our house, we have plenty of food, lots of food. And so my mother bought this breakfast as the most important meal of the day thing, or at least that it was important. So we had box cereals everywhere. We had oatmeal that could be cooked up. I mean, there was eggs, there was sausage, anything, just 
For Christ's sake, kids, get up and cook yourself a breakfast because you're going to drop dead if you don't. Nevertheless, most mornings, I elected to skip breakfast. And I would simply get a glass of water, drink it, and dash out the house off to school. And I was actually uh, an outstanding student. And so when I got to medical school and they talked about the virtues of breakfast, I couldn't see where breakfast was necessary. And even as a medical student, I ate every other day, so obviously I skipped breakfast quite a bit. And so I was really reluctant to tell my patients that they had to eat breakfast. So they say, but you won't hear that from marketers. Breakfast is the most skipped meal in America, which means money on the table for the food industry. It's always a good idea to remain skeptical of the claims made in advertisements and the ideas expressed by organizations with vested interests. With breakfast foods, skepticism is particularly necessary since advertising is the foundation of the entire ready-to-eat industry. The incentives for deception are strong. Be vigilant. Breakfast is the most marketed meal of the day. And this is from Price-O-Nomics. And so really then, there's no evidence of the health benefits of breakfast. Really none. Now, one thing there is evidence of is the health damage of breakfast. If you will recall, uh, when people started eating breakfast, Religiously, they started getting dyspepsia, which meant that the digestive process didn't have enough time to complete itself from the last meal in the evening all the way to the first meal the next day. The body actually needed a little more time to digest. Now, another thing we can take a look at, and I want to warn you, um, association does not equal causation. If you look at the graph of 100 years of obesity in the United States, yeah, 100 years of obesity, then you look at the trend for U.S.-born white men, and it really doesn't matter. You can look at white women or black men or whatever, but this is a handy curve to look at. And you see that obesity was as high as 25%, I'm sorry, 27%, Back in about uh, 1885. It's shocking that uh, 27% of Americans were overweight. So this curve has gone steadily upward. I do mean without a single dip. Not a single dip. It has gone steadily steadily upward. To now we have uh, 47% of adult white men who are obese. This is uh, amazing. And actually, this curve ends at uh, 1990, 1995. So, what you can see then is what you can infer from the article that I read that most people skip breakfast unless they've been influenced by advertising, in which case they pick their favorite breakfast, which might be a bagel, which might be Rice Krispies, which might be eggs and bacon. There's a lot of things it might be, but it doesn't matter. The point is, you're adding an extra meal, um, slowing the, the digestive process, 
and adding calories. And a person ordinarily would not have eaten that. And so, literally, you can lay the obesity epidemic, if you want to call it that, at the feet of the practice of eating breakfast every day. In other words, people, uh, again, this is a, this chart, unfortunately, ends, or doesn't begin until 1885. But from the prior article, we know that, that the breakfast people intervened around 18, uh, 1850 or so. And so this curve was already on, it had a pretty uh, flat slope, but it was an upward trending slope. And it gets steeper and steeper and steeper, and then somewhere around 1970, 1970 to 75, it just, it, it really takes off. It takes an increased uh, upward uh, incline. So what happened between 1970 and 1975? Well, between 1970 and 1975, the United States government issued dietary guidelines extolling the breakfast cereals covered in sugar. And I remember from when I was a kid, that was in the 70s, where these sugary cereals just uh, popped up every place and everywhere. Even my father was a fan of sugar-frosted flakes. I mean, in philosophically, he thought it was kind of a cute idea. I think he might even have bought a box for us. But by that time, 1970, we were fully indoctrinated into the, uh, you know, if I want sugar on something, I'll put it on myself. So we really didn't see the sense in Frosted Flakes or any of the other uh, cereals with all the um, sugar added. But I think most people would benefit tremendously if they skip breakfast. Heresy, isn't it? And so the question is, when you skip breakfast, what do you replace it with? Now that sounds like a stupid question because I said skip breakfast, right? But that's not a dumb question at all. So I recommend people skip breakfast, but what should they replace it with? They should replace it with at least a pint of water. At least a pint of water. Why? Because it turns out that heart attacks and strokes occur in the morning. And the number one cause of this is dehydration. And living in an industrialized uh, situation where people basically don't have access to either uh, water or uh, a bathroom, usually from the time they leave their home until lunch break at work, which might be four or five hours in the future. So you have this person who's had nothing to eat or drink uh, from the time they went to bed and nothing to eat or drink until the next day uh, at noon, if they skip breakfast. But even if you eat breakfast, a lot of people don't include water as part of their breakfast. They'll eat something seriously dry, like a bagel, or like dried cereal, or heaven forbid, granola. Uh, They'll stuff this stuff down, which is very dehydrating, run out the door, not have any uh, water to drink, and then have a heart attack or stroke. And then if you listen to modern medical uh, theories, well, you know, the person... um, hadn't seen a doctor, they weren't fully medicated, they weren't fully diagnosed, they had hidden heart disease, 
when really, actually, that most likely was not uh, was not the case. Uh, during the, um, I forget which election it was. I guess it was the Bush election. So we had, there's a famous newscaster who went to his son's graduation in Europe, flew back to the United States, went straight to bed, jumped up out of bed, exercised on his bike, just like his doctor said, took all of his drugs, just like his doctor said. Now, they didn't say if he ate breakfast or not. Dashed out the door to his first uh, radio show appearance and uh, promptly had a heart attack and died. So there was a person who had a serious water deficiency. But he did everything his doctor told him. The doctor didn't mention drinking water. And this is a real big downfall. But the best thing you can do for your health, I think, is to take a pass on this breakfast thing. Because that is an incredible opportunity for people to eat food that they aren't even particularly interested in eating. They don't really feel uh, that hungry. But it's absolutely essential to drink water. And it's so essential, I would even go so far as to say, well, I prefer and certainly suggest distilled or reverse osmosis water, uh, it is such an emergency to have water first thing in the morning that I'll say drink any kind of water you want. It's better to just have some water and not have uh, an issue. So what does this tell us? So we have basically a government guideline. You know, everyone should eat breakfast. And this government guideline is based on what? The echo of advertising. So you have the advertise, the industry trying to expand a market, putting forth this advertising, and the government says, oh, we'll make it a guideline. Doing nothing more than fueling an industry and contributing nothing to people's health. But this is actually, you know, de rigor. So you have the, we've seen this before when the government says, oh, stop eating butter, eat margarine. Okay, so now, what, 20, 30 years after the recommendation, we find that the increased eating of margarine was in large part responsible for heart attacks and issues. So now we have a situation in the 70s, the government said, oh, you know, eat low fat, uh, don't worry about the sugar, just don't eat that fat. And again, we find that disease uh, skyrocketed and obesity. So the moral of the story, of course, is if it's a government guideline, probably better off ignoring it. And so just for uh, <laughs> entertainment, I decide I would take a look at some other government guidelines. Now remember, the reason for government guidelines is because the government cares about you more than you care about yourself. That's right. The government cares about you more than you care about yourself. That's number one. Number two, the government has experts. That's right. These are experts. These are people who've read at least one more book than you have on the topic. That's right, because they're experts. And so I took a look at the government's guidelines for activity. Now, the important thing to understand about this is that the activity guidelines for adults, I'll summarize it for you real quick, is to walk seven hours a day. Walk four to seven hours, I'm not a day, four to seven hours a week. Walk four to seven hours a week. All right, I got that. So what should a child do? What, I mean, it's just a child, so we're, we're talking about somebody, uh, child and adolescence. So adolescence, teenagers, someone 18 and younger, who is being fed and supported by this 
adult who's walking um, seven hours a day. So what should this child do? They even give you a uh, sample child. Now, this is going to seem harmless or innocuous to you, but believe me, it is not. They're going to explain to you exactly what this child should be doing. They even give this kid a name. His name is Harold. And for the sake of discussion, we'll just say it's hypothetical. So Harold participates in many types of physical activities in many places. For example, he has physical education class in school. He jumps rope and does gymnastics and sit-ups in school. During recess, he plays on the playground, doing activities that require running and climbing. He probably runs from bullies. I added that myself. He also likes to play soccer with his friends and family. When Harold gets home from school, he likes to engage in active play, like tag, and rides his bicycle with his friends and family. And so Harold gets 60 minutes of physical activity each day that is at least moderate intensity, and he's uh, a great kid. So this is what Harold does. Notice, at no point do we have Harold doing any kind of useful activity. I know Harold's seven years old, but still. Harold could go pick up kindling for the fire. Harold could unload groceries from the car. The little bags, but he could do something. Harold could clean up his room. There's some physical activity. There's a lot of things Harold could do that might be, well, productive. We've got this kid totally involved in aimless, pointless activity. And he's not even going on the seven-hour a week worth of walks with his parents. And so we have this physical activity recommendation by the government that basically, in a pretty straightforward way, splits the family apart. We have physical activity. Parents do this. Kids do that. And the kid at no point engages in physical activity that might be productive. At seven years old, you know, he could start learning some kind of useful something or other to do around the house. Maybe he could sweep the floor. I don't know. seems to me he could learn something. Maybe he'd get a nail and a hammer and practice hammering. But there, this is um, a shocking waste of a life, especially if you're going to have a teenager get involved in this level of activity. A teenager, by golly, he should be he should get started building his um, micro home so he can move out. You know, build himself a nice little twenty foot by fifteen foot home that he can move into when he feels like, you know, his parents uh, no longer have the answers. But what this does is it traps the same way the breakfast recommendation traps the country in a cycle of consuming. Uh, empty, useless, non-nutritive calories, this activity, physical activity recommendation, health.gov, recommends useless, pointless activity that is going to trap a family and individuals in a cycle of not getting anything useless done, a cycle of needing to um, hire helpers and assistants for every little thing. The moral of the story is the government doesn't care more about you than you do, number one. Number two, the experts, even if they were knowledgeable, 
are hired for their willingness to parrot the corporate line. So this is uh, the take-home message. The take-home message is no one cares more about your health than you do. And this idea that the government has an overriding interest in your health is simply a corollary to the belief that the government owns your body and you don't. So something to think about. As always, message from our sponsor, visit VitalityCapsules.com and get your bottle of Vitality Capsules. And you can also listen to prior replays and get even more interesting ideas. Okay, so we have some questions. Let's uh, take a question. Let's just try this. Oh, by the way, this is coming to you from Panama. So we have a raging storm going on outside. It's been great. We've been able to have Internet even this long. All right. Hi, your name and your question? Hello? Okay, so we're going to try to go to our chat room. Okay, so this person says, Dr. Daniel, how many meals do you have during the day? And what time do you eat? Okay. So, when I decide to have three meals a day, which is not very often, I'll have a glass of green drink for breakfast, a salad for lunch, and vegetables and rice, uh, with or without meat, for dinner. So that's pretty much a three-meal-a-day plan. Then I have the two-meal-a-day plan, which is just a salad. And sometimes I'll just have um, just, a, really just a salad. That's pretty much it for the day. Then I'll drink water and maybe have one piece of fruit. So that's what I would like to, that's what I like to do. So today, for example, ah, today I had nothing for breakfast and I had water. For lunch, I went to a carnival, and they were selling couscous with vegetables, which I bought, and then they had a piece of chicken on the side. So that's what I had for lunch, if you want to call it that, and then um, I won't have anything for dinner. That's my that's it for the whole day. Oh, I had a, a glass of green drink when I got home. That's it. Dr. Daniels, does turpentine help heal metabolic damage? And the answer is yes, it does. It's been my observation that um, turpentine does heal metabolic damage. So in other words, people who are diabetic, their blood sugars uh, come down and blood sugar control improves. People with hypertension, their blood pressure, their blood pressure comes down. Very, very nice. Uh, it turns out a lot of what we call metabolic damage is apparently mediated by parasites. <laughs> Dr. Dennis. Thank you so much for continuing to share your knowledge and past experiences with everyone. I enjoy listening to your talks and learn so much. I feel so grateful to have found you and appreciate all the information you give so freely. You're welcome, and thank you for your comment. Okay. Dr. Daniels, what do you call one piece of fruit? Is that a whole fruit? That's a good question because different fruits come in different sizes. And so um, a whole piece of fruit... um, down here in Panama, I would say it would be one orange, and that's not a very big orange. So it might be um, a quarter pound, so that might be four ounces. 
And so if you have, say, a pineapple and you've cut it up in chunks or something, then that would be, you know, like maybe one cup of pineapple. Or if you're eating a banana, maybe one medium to small banana. <laughs> okay. Dr. Daniels, would you ever consider writing a book on healing or curing health issues with herbs and foods? Yes, I would, but I'd have to get around to doing it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's been on my mind. It would be amazing to have a book with all of your herbal remedies for different conditions. Yes, because I, I, I read this stuff. I'm like, man, this stuff is really more complicated than it's got to be. You know, I read these books and I say, oh, you know, get this supplement, get that supplement. Um, go order this from China, like, Jesus Christ. So yes, uh, uh, I'll do that. But meanwhile, people can um, join office hours. Go to vitalitycapsules.com uh, and click on office hours, the top tab, and sign up for office hours. It's a monthly program where I answer all of your questions every month. Okay, I have another question here. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Dr. Daniels. How are you doing today? Great. Well, I just want to make a comment real quick. Well, you listening to your show today, it made me realize I wasn't crazy because, you know, um, you know, my my parents, my mom, my grandmother, they would always tell me, "Well, you need to eat breakfast. You're going to hurt yourself." And I'm not a breakfast person. And if I do, I like to eat greens and stuff like that. Not traditional, what they call traditional American breakfast food. Right. Um. So I'm. Thank you. I wasn't wrong. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> um, I appreciate that. Um, two, um, I, I heard you mention about they would ask, someone asked a question about you eat three meals a day. I mean, you're, you're, you, don't, you seem to eat like maybe one to two meals a day. Yeah, I'm I just like that. Me, I, but I'm, I'm married, and so uh, my mm-hmm. husband, if I let him, would eat three or four meals a day. So uh-huh. we have compromise. So he likes to eat breakfast, and so uh, he eats eggs and bread and butter and maybe uh, bacon or ham. And so uh, he'll eat that for breakfast. And sometimes I can get him to eat oatmeal, but he always wants sugar and peanut butter and a few other things in the oatmeal. So it's very little oatmeal at the end of the oatmeal session. So he eats breakfast, he eats lunch, and he eats dinner. And so for me, when I don't eat, okay. let's say I skip breakfast and I skip lunch. Uh, so the only meal we really have together might be um, dinner. So today, we had zero meals together. So for me to get a meal okay. with him, I'd have to add a second, I have to add a second meal to the day. But left to my own devices, mm. I eat just one meal a day. Okay. Which which I feel good about too because I kind of do the same thing. But what do, one thing? What do you recommend for someone? My metabolism is a little high, and um, to, to eat like that sometimes I don't always benefit because I end up my weight's been going up and down. Well, um, you weigh more than you want or so less than you want. I actually weigh less than I want to be, uh, and on top of that, I am. The, I have been going through something physically, and I, I have no idea what it is either. Um, so um, I'm actually less than where I want to be. I would really like to be because I'm, I'm 5'9", so I would really like to be at least between 135 and 145 and try to maintain that. 
Yeah, so for people who want to gain weight, I tell them to eat their meal that they would eat, pause for 10 minutes, and eat the same meal all over again. So you don't need to yeah. add a second or third meal. You just need to change the one meal you have. So put on your plate whatever you think is reasonable. Eat that. Wait 10 or 15 minutes. Refill your plate. And eat the same thing all over again. And then that will put you on a pretty good course um, for, for weight gain. That is uh, a very good way uh, to gain weight. All right. Well, thank you for calling. Thank you. We have... Thank uh, you. You're welcome. Dr. Daniel? Yes. Hello? Hi. You're on the air. Yes, this is... Hi. This is Zoe uh, calling out of Kentucky. I have a question about beef uh, eating liver. You had uh, mentioned that that could be good for people. What kind of liver were you talking about? Calf liver, C-A-L-F, calf liver from a very young animal. Younger the better. Uh, because, as we know, the liver is the filter uh, for toxins and chemicals in the body. And because the liver does such a mm-hmm. big job of everything, um, the liver also gets a lion's share of all the um, nutrition in the body. And so this means, then, that this is actually the most nutritious um, part of the animal. Um, unfortunately, mm-hmm. if you get an old animal, you have a liver full of toxins. Not good. So... You need to eat calf liver, C-A-L-F, calf liver. And um, the amount is usually like a four-ounce serving. And I recommend people eat it every day until their body says, you know what, we're done with this. Which sometimes can happen after the first serving, and sometimes it takes two or three or four. But uh, that would be the way to handle the liver. Okay, thank you for calling in. All right, so here's a question. <laughs> Don Trevian does anyone do well having breakfast? Uh, depends on what you call breakfast. Um, if you call breakfast a meal before noon, um, then yes, people who do, I think, people who do hard labor, but even if you look back over historical accounts, people who do hard labor, they get up, they have their water, they do some hard labor for a couple of hours, and then they eat. Very, very interesting. This idea of eating um every morning before you engage in any activity at all, um, it doesn't seem like it's really a health practice. There's no um, basis for believing that it's healthy. And certainly the breakfast program for disadvantaged children (laughs) would be an excellent um, opportunity to see if feeding someone first thing in the morning actually helps them feel better and... um, work better or accomplish more? And the answer, of course, is no, because these so-called disadvantaged children who are in the breakfast-lunch program um, do not seem to be enjoying either better academic achievement or better health. So I think we've got that um, figured out. Now, in defense of breakfast just as a time to eat, most of these breakfast programs are compromised by processed foods. Okay. If a child is complaining of awful dreams, what's the best thing to do? Is this more of a nutritional thing? It might not be. If a four to six year old is complaining about awful dreams, I would take I would turn, get the TV out of the house, remove the TV from the house, remove um, any um, internet access from the child. That means no video games, none of that stuff. So get rid of all of that stuff. Because 
what the children age four to six years old are exposed to now in the um, Saudi comics is, is just a lot of killing and violence, and it's very distressful, especially to a child who maybe isn't raised with that. The child will have these dreams, and it's actually just a replay of this um, child programming that he's getting on TV um, and on the Internet. And it's, it's very damaging and disruptive to the child's development. So if a child's complaining about awful dreams, um, I would stop the input. The other thing to ask the child uh, about these dreams is, what's going on? What happened in the dream? He'll tell you. And you say, well, well Johnny, um, see, in the dream, um, this person harmed that person. Have you ever seen a real person do this? And you'd be surprised what he might tell you. So the, the question is, has he had a real-life experience that mimics what's going on in the dreams? And if not, then you can relax and just cut off all the um, automated input. Cut out all the TV, all the internet, everything. A kid four to six years old uh, definitely does not have any need for any of that uh, programming. Okay. Oh, by the way, I have to get station identification. You're listening to Blake Radio, Rainbow Soul Network, Healing with Dr. Daniels. Okay. All right. So somebody in the chat room just happened to uh, provide some information, which is interesting. And so this person said, okay, this is the second case of the day. Um, people should not fake cancer. And this person um, went to uh, an Idaho woman, started a fake uh, fundraising campaign to raise money to treat cancer she didn't have. Okay. And so, what's wrong with this? Well, he said, well, Dr. Dan, this is obvious. This person is committing fraud. They're, they're soliciting money from kind-hearted people and just stealing from them because the person doesn't really have cancer. All right, I got that. But the real problem here, the real crime, this crime, this is a, this is a felony, okay? This, you're charging this poor lady with a felony. The real issue, of course, is the medical industrial complex itself, when it diagnoses cancer, um, is diagnosing a harmless condition in close to 50% of cases. Right. So the medical industry can diagnose cancer, fake cancer, when a person has no cancer, do chemotherapy, do surgery, um, collect anywhere from fifty to several hundred thousand dollars. No crime there. So this lady's real crime is she's impinging on a government-sanctioned con. She's trying to run a con that's competing with, interfering with, the cancer con that's run by people who are licensed, certified, and given permission by the government. And that is the real uh, crime. So people can, can, can get that, then that would help people understand a lot of things. For example, there are people who run all kinds of, of, of scams, who embezzle against their employer, for example. That's not a felony. No one gets, no one gets in a whole lot of trouble for that. Um, in fact, a lot of times the government won't even prosecute the person. But somebody who tries to raise money for cancer they don't have, that's a problem. Why? Because that money is not going to get turned over to the cancer industry. And it's all about supporting the medical industrial complex and funding this. 
Next question. Dr. Daniels, thank you so much for your work. I was wondering about turpentine for infections in the blood. Is there a way you would recommend going about a turpentine cleanse against infections? And are there other supplements you might recommend being included in such a cleanse? Please, thank you so much. Okay, so you go to... So you go to vitalitycapsules.com forward slash candida. That's vitalitycapsules.com forward slash candida and download my report, The Candida Cleaner, which tells you all about um, using turpentine, supplements you might want to use, and it works very well uh, for cleaning the blood. Dr. Daniels, I think the, this lady who committed the fundraising felony of raising money for a cancer she didn't have made the cancer industry look bad. Yes, she did, because of course, naturally she would have been cured. 90 seconds. 100% cure rate for a cancer you don't have. And the industry knows it too, and that's why they're very keen to diagnose cancer in people who are basically healthy. Okay, that is it. We are done for the day. As always, remember, think happens. And please visit vitalitycapsules.com. Get your free report on Candida. So it's forward slash Candida. And we'll see you next week.